With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. A station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. Who am I? What am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Is there a purpose to all of us? Join Hercules and Victus and crew as they seek answers to these and other timeless questions and serve Mount Olympus by safeguarding the path of mystic ascension. Welcome to the Pride of Olympus. Greetings. Welcome to Pride of Olympus. I'm Hercules Invictus, and today I will be your producer and engineer. I am, as always, very honored to announce the legendary and multi-talented Nick Curdo. And he has an excellent show planned for us for today. Greetings and welcome, Nick. Hello there, Hercules. Thank you so much for your very, very kind words. I appreciate that very much. And I'm very excited about the show tonight. Uh, incidentally, I'm, I usually, as you know, do live uh, podcasts from Manhattan. Yes. But tonight I'm in Staten Island because my partner, uh, Hal, is celebrating a birthday. He was born on Valentine's Day. That is awesome. And, yeah, and so it's, it's, you know, I'm sure you, you know, he, he just went out to uh, bring some people home. They were at a, a birthday party here, but um, I wouldn't know when and when he when he returns. Uh, so we had a, a wonderful little a party for him here, and um, so um, uh, so again, it's going to be live, and it's, it's from Staten Island tonight. And my guest is is going to be speaking from Colorado, where she makes her home. Uh, just a little quick uh, uh, bit about uh, my background, just so they know a little bit about me, and then we're going to go right into an, an amazing interview. Um, uh, so um, I now live in Manhattan and have for most of my life, but I was born and raised in New England, uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, to be precise. I went to the Massachusetts College of Art and Design in Boston and uh, graduated uh, and then went directly to New York City to begin my career, and also to continue to explore my, my spiritual search, as well as other big questions in my life that I really wanted answers to, and that became a, a very big focus for me. Um, I've been studying the Arantia book now for 
about 35 years and counting. Um, some people say the Arantia book found me, <laughs> and I, I wouldn't uh-huh. dispute that. <laughs> it's an expansive, breathtaking experience to explore this awesome, wonderful, and really truly loving book. The word Urantia, U-R-A-N-T-I-A, means our planet Earth. I'm getting a little feedback. I don't know if you guys are hearing that, but I am, just so you know. No, here, um, here I, on the scan, there's no feedback. I'll, I'll keep checking the sound levels, though. Oh, thank you, Hercules. So uh, currently I'm the outreach chair of the Urantia Society of Greater New York, um, made up of uh, readers, uh, United States readers from New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, and other places. And I've been a past president of that amazing group. Um, I now have a Urantia book study group that I would welcome anyone who wants to know more about the book uh, to, to join us in Manhattan the first and third Sunday of each month from 1 to 2 o'clock. And we meet at the center. That's the Gay, Lesbian, Bisexual, Transgender Questioning Center, an amazing building that just was renovated and is gorgeous. It's at 208 West 13th Street. New York City. Uh, uh, from 7th Avenue, you walk on 13th Street, a little west, like about maybe four four buildings in, and you'll see a large brick building, left-hand side, and that is the building. Uh, we're usually on the second floor. Uh, there's a welcoming right at the uh, ground floor when you come in, and you can ask the people there what room uh, that the Urantia Society, Urantia Book Study Group has, and they'll direct you to the elevator and tell you which room we are assigned to be in. Again, it's free, and we welcome all those who want to know more about this incredible book. Um, so, also, it's been translated, I believe, in over 22 languages currently. More to come, which is quite an accomplishment. It's a 2,000-page book. Oh, my goodness, to know that it's translated in so many wonderful languages so it's available worldwide and, and can be understood. It's also sold at better bookstores worldwide also. And also, if you go on the website, it's, uh, I'll give you the uh, website address, www.book.org. Org, and you can read the entire book line, and they even have a way that you can listen to it. So it's um, it's it's an amazing website. Take a look at that. Now I'm very excited about tonight's show. Uh, my my featured guest on the program is a dear friend, a longtime Urantia book reader, and um, I, I can't wait to interview her. Uh, her name is Paula Thompson. Paula, hello. Hi, Nick. Good to be here. So great, great to have you here. And you Thank are you. in Colorado, and that's where you make your home. And how long have you been there? I was born and raised here. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Excellent. Yeah. And I got to ask you. I got to ask you. Uh, do you have any snow there? And if so, how much? Well, uh, we got snow last week, and uh, we got I don't know about six, seven inches. And so there's still some hanging around, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, sure the streets is. and the sidewalks are all melted off, but there's still some on the grass. Okay. It's been, yeah. we've been pretty good here in New York City. It's been a, a kind uh, winter, except for uh, one storm and some, a little bit of uh, occasional flakes. 
it's really been quite quite uh, low key this year. I'm glad to say. <laughs> That's <that>. good. <laughs> yeah, we've had some very very cold weather though. Some uh, oh my god, it was so. Um, I, I don't think we've ever had uh, weather as cold as that. So that was something to deal with for sure. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's been uh, quite frigid in the Midwest too, especially just brutal. So oh, I can stay imagine. warm, everybody. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I keep warm. Now, Paula, yeah. I, I, I believe that you've been studying the book for over 40 years. Is that correct? Yeah, 43 years. 43. Wow. Amazing. And I got to yeah. ask you um, how you found the book or how it found you. Well, um, I uh, am deeply religious. I have been all my life. And some might say spiritual. I'll say I'm deeply spiritual. Um, and in religious in the sense of how the Urantia book defines religious, uh, not with institutional religions. In fact, I'm unchurched, actually. My mom quit going to the Episcopal Church when I was eight years old. But uh, before she quit going to church... Um, she gave me a deep and abiding love of Jesus and um, and also of God. My father and my grandmother were very, very spiritual, my, my father's mother, and uh, deeply spiritual and deeply faithful, and they were unchurched as well, uh, but they both had a deep and abiding faith in God. So I always had um, a wonderful relationship with God and an unchurched relationship with God. Mm-hmm and a doctrine-free relationship with God. And I never uh, necessarily put God and religion together in terms of organized religion or the church. Uh, To me, God was a a person that I knew in my heart and loved and prayed to, and the same with Jesus. Uh, I was quite able to separate them from doctrine, from the doctrines about them. And... um, I had a relationship with them, so my life is pretty much characterized by certain decisions I've made about God, and um, one of them notably was when I was 16 and I got involved with a fundamental religious group, and um, while I was in the middle of that involvement, uh, a woman I've never seen before nor since had a very serious talk with me about that, and uh my family was rather concerned that I was getting involved with this group, and we were sitting around the kitchen table one night. She came over with my a childhood friend of my brother's. She was his girlfriend, um, the friend's girlfriend, and we were talking, and my brother said, you know, made a kind of an offhanded comment about how I was getting involved with this religion. And she said to me, she looked me in the eyes and she said, you know, they claim to have the truth, and maybe they do and maybe they don't. But you have the ability to know the truth when you hear it. Wow. And if anything somebody says to you and claims that it's true, if it grinds against your natural beliefs, don't believe it. You don't have to. Mm -hmm. If it grinds against you, reject it probably not true and there was something so powerful about what she said um that i i knew the truth and what she had said you know i recognized the truth i i now know from reading the arantia book that that was my reality response and the spirit of truth bearing witness with my spirit that what she was saying was true 
And I accepted it, and I said, that's, you know, reasonable. Yes, I agree. And it wasn't long after that that this, uh, the person that was taking me through, let's just say indoctrinating me in this religion, told me that if uh, I didn't convert my parents to that particular faith, um, they would, God would kill them at Armageddon, and it would be oh, my, my fault. Oh, boy. Oh, wow. Oh, my and God. I, oh, oh. Hello, I, I the red belt, talk the about, red lights are flashing, right? The red lights yeah. are going. <laughs> well, I talk about grind against my natural beliefs. And right. I actually uh, said to her, you mean to tell me that God is going to kill my mother and father just because they don't claim to be this religion? And she said, oh, yes, he'll have to. Um, because, and she rationalized it, right, with doctrine and whatever. And I said, you know, I said, I, you may believe that God would kill your loving parents. You you may even believe that it would be heaven on earth like you teach for a thousand years where the lion lays down with the lamb, and you think that would be heaven knowing that God had, living in that place, knowing that God had killed your loving parents. But that wouldn't be heaven for me. That would be hell. That's exactly what I told her. And she wow. was shocked that I said that. Well, I bet she was. I bet she was. No, probably just heard that before. I was 16 years old, and I, I said, I'm sorry. I told her, I'm sorry, but I can't study this with you anymore. Mm-hmm. And I stepped out of her front door, and I stood on her front porch, and I said a prayer to God, and I'll never forget what I said. And I let me let me just preface this by saying when you never forget what you thought or a prayer you said to God, that's a powerful moment in your life, in your spiritual life. Yes. I, I said to God, I said, you know, God, you may be just the way they say you are. And if you are that way, I'm sorry. I can't worship you. Wow. And then as an afterthought, I said, somehow, I don't think you are that way. (laughs) You're going to have to reveal yourself to me because I'm not getting involved with any more religions. Four years later, my father died, and he was my hero. He was everything to me, the one person that could make me feel better when I was sad. They could show me the bright side and lift my spirits. And, oh, gosh, he was just such a wonderful man, such a good man and a wise man. And I loved him and respected him so much. And uh, when he died, I, I and my whole family was just grieving so bad. And I told God two things. I said, you need to show me where my dad is, and you need to show me more especially that he still is. And I kept hearing this still small voice in the back of my mind say, you have to find the good news. And so I went to the Bible thinking, well, it must be there. This religious group that I had gotten involved with, they were very big into the Bible and very, you know, uh, very clear and very devoted to the Bible and biblical studies and, you know, just sincerely uh, Bible scholars. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, what I'm looking for has to be in the Bible. You know, where else would it be? And uh, I I thumbed through the first time I couldn't find anything meaningful uh, in terms of where my dad was and that he still was. And so then the second time I looked, I thought, I'll read from cover to cover. Well, I got to the begats, 
and my need was so great, you know, so to get to that, well, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and I threw it down, and I just, I said, God, what I'm looking for isn't here. You're going to have to show me the good news, or I'm going oh, to lose boy. my mind. Wow. And within a week, honestly, within a week after that prayer, I, I literally cried myself to sleep. My grief mm-hmm. was so huge. Within a week after that prayer, um, the Arantia book ended up in my hands, and I knew. Now, how did that happen? How did that happen? Well, at the time, my husband, uh, at the time, uh, he died in a car accident in 1982, and uh, but this was in 1976, early in 1976, and late in 1975, right before my dad died, my husband was arrested for possession of marijuana and, and actually thrown in jail. Oh, boy. Which they did back then. It's legal now. Who who knew? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's but, another one. Yeah. <laughs> it's legal in Colorado. So, you know, I still pinch myself sometimes and think, you know, I never thought that would happen in my lifetime. And and mm-hmm. uh, I'm way over those days in my life. But still, you know, uh, yeah. it was it was one of those things where you, you couldn't believe that they would throw somebody in jail for that. But they did. For that, right. And, yep. um, uh and because he wasn't a violent man, but, you know, he had issues. There was no doubt about it. And um, it was him who called me that day uh, after I said that prayer. Then out of the blue, he called me a couple of days later, and he said, when you come to visit on Saturday, will you bring 1250 with you? And I said, what's it for? I was 20 years old. We had a little one-year-old baby. I said, I'm trying to hold our lives together. Twelve fifty was a lot of money for me. I mean, I didn't have two nickels to rub together, you know. I right. said, what's it, what's it for? He said, well, it's for this book. I said, a, uh-huh. a book? What kind of a book? He said, well, it's called the Arantia book. And uh, it's a spiritual book. And I said, a spiritual book? And he said, yeah, I want to read it. I said, well, 1250 is a lot of money. He said, well, I just want to read it. There's some people here that are reading, and I want to join in their group. So just bring the 1250 if you can. I said, okay. And then I thought, what kind of spiritual book would have this man's attention? If it has his attention, it's probably a pretty good thing. And so I should really try to scrape together the money to get this book for him. And I did. And uh, I went to visit him, and, and uh, the deal was I would meet the guy. <laughs> it's kind of like a drug deal, only it was a Urantia book uh, uh, deal, uh, uh. you know, very clandestine. I was to meet him outside the gate of the, you know, the of the security area, and uh, he he would give me the book, and I'd give him the money, you know. So he ha- he was standing there. He had the trunk open. And he had the book all ready for him, and I gave him the 1250, and he flashed this huge, gigantic smile at me and handed me the book in a box, which back then they came in boxes always. Right. Well, that man was Buck Weimer. <laughs> and um, my husband later told me who who that was. I didn't know. He didn't say a word to me. He just smiled really big and gave me the book, and I took it in, you know, past the guards and all of that. They checked it out said, you know, okay, it's good, and I took it in, and I sat down at a table in a cafeteria with him, and I handed him the book. And um, he said, crack it open, and I cracked it open, and it went, uh, it, it just so happened to crack open to The Life and Teachings of Jesus, which is part four oh, of the Arantia book. Part four, of course. 
and birth and infancy. And um, right to the very beginning of that paper, I know you're familiar with it, Nick, right right to birth and infancy, the very beginning, and I started reading the, the prologue to the paper and then started reading uh, section one, and it was talking about Mary and Joseph and who they were and their lineage. You know, Joseph was adopted. Mary was a well-known blonde type with brown eyes, you know. And I was thinking, <laughs> here again, I'll never forget what I thought. I thought three things. I thought, that's not in the Bible. Right. And then I thought, who would pretend to know that? Okay. And then I thought, if they would pretend to know it, why would they? Okay. And I said to my husband, I need to read this book. And he said, I know you do. Take it with you. And he pushed it at me, and I pushed it back across the table. I said, no, this is for you. What are you going to read? He said, it doesn't matter. You take this with you. Hmm. And I just knew it was the answer to my prayer. Now, I have loved Jesus all my life. I, you know, I think about Jesus and my heart swells. Mm-hmm. You know, I get, I just think about him and I get choked up. And I've always too. felt like that. And so I, up. yeah, I just, he's with me, right? He, you know, you know the feeling. He oh, said, boy. I stand at the door of men's hearts and knock. And if they will open to me, I will come in. Well, I must have opened to him a long time ago because I can't <laughs> remember a time that I didn't feel him in my heart whenever I thought about him. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel, you know, and I I don't mean f- literally feel him, but I would feel my heart swell. To this day it swells when I contemplate Jesus. And all I have to do is just even contemplate him, let alone say the beautiful things he said, the many things he did, his life of unselfish service, his truth, beauty, and goodness, his magnificent uh, words of truth, just, you know, they live in me. And so, uh, you know, I wanted to read part four. I wanted to read it really bad. I mean, I, I had opened to life, birth and infancy. I was so interested, but I just knew I had to read the whole book. And so I started with the foreword. At 20, it was quite deep. Oh, yeah. And And what's interesting is as I read it, uh, I just knew it was going in. I knew it was going in on some level, very deep. I didn't. I can't say I understood everything it was saying. Maybe about ten percent of what it was saying, I really kind of went, "Okay, that makes sense." The rest Welcome of it is to like the club on that one. Yeah, you know, right. yeah, it's very difficult to start off. It really is. Yes, and I thought, you know, it, I know it makes sense. I just yeah. knew, but but the intellect of it is so high. Oh boy! It's almost like reading another language. Yet yep. I didn't get discouraged because I just knew this was the answer to my prayer. And then I read that. Now you can't imagine. After that prayer, I said to God, "You may be the way they say you are, but somehow, I don't think you are that way." Right? Mm. Yep. The God I knew in my heart. And when I started reading those first five papers of the Urantia book, that was my God. And I've never gotten over that, Nick, never. That gift of, of, you know, meeting the God in my, you know, of my dreams, the God of my heart, 
that gift of having the Urantia book say, no, here's God. (laughs) He's all the things you hoped he was and more, more than you ever dreamed. I mean, the first five papers, the universal father, the nature of God, the attributes of God, God's relation to the universe, God's relation to the individual, those five papers... And and within them, you know, the Father's name, the reality of God, God is a universal spirit, the mystery of God, personality of the universal Father. You know, <laughs> I mean, I just was enthralled. This is my God, and this will always be my God. This is the only God my children will ever know. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the only God I ever share with anybody. You know, Paula, you are so right on the money on that. You, you write down the line. I, I, I'm with you on all of every, every point you just covered. I can honestly say, me too. And <laughs> when I saw originally, when like when a kid, when they said, well, they're God-fearing people. They're God-fearing. I'm thinking, why would you fear? Why would you fear a loving father? That that made absolutely no sense to me. And the fire and brimstone and all the things that were being preached where I was going to church. And I was thinking, something's really wrong with this picture. I'm not buying that. I'm really not buying it because all the points that you were just saying, me too, on every single one of them. <laughs> Isn't so, that amazing? Yeah. And you know as well as I do because you've met so many your ranch book readers over the years too that yeah. we we have a very similar experience with this. We rejected doctrine about Absolutely. God. Absolutely. I got Wait, there was something story. about it that it just didn't resonate, and we just didn't accept it. But we didn't throw God out with that bathwater. You know what I mean? Exactly. We didn't because say that means better. I don't we, believe. There was something else. There was something much better and much deeper, much more loving, and we weren't going to settle for anything less. And so the God-fearing uh, idea just somehow, no, goodbye. I don't want that. I don't think that's real. Right. And I'm going down the same path, Paula. So much so that you were just saying, <laughs> I got to tell you one quick story. I think it brings bring a sure. smile to your face. Uh, okay. I was raised a Roman Catholic, right? My father being Italian, my mother being Irish. And so <laughs> I was in a, a, an Italian church in Springfield, Mass. And it came to my confirmation. And that means that you're going to become a man of, of, of the church. So um, we studied uh, catechism. And then it came the big day in, in the big church where there was organ music and choir singing and all the boys and girls were dressed well. And one by one, we, we stood in front of the, uh, the, the bishop, who was in a golden chair with silks and um, amazing rings, diamond rings, rubies on his, all his fingers. It was quite a sight to see. And, <laughs> and that also kind of went, wait a moment, something is, mm, I don't know, something is really weird about this. So... We waited all the, uh, the, the young, young ladies first got, they uh, made their confirmation by kneeling down, and the, um, the bishop uh, pats him gently on the, on the cheek, and uh, kind of like a, a makeshift of a slap, and that means you're, you're now you're confirmed. Well, huh. all the, uh, the, the girls finished first, now it was the boys' turn, and I was kind of in the middle of that, and when it came my turn, my, my, I remember my father said, Nick, whatever you do, there's going to be music playing, uh, the organ, the, the choir's going to be singing, 
Uh, his holiness is going to be sitting on a throne on the altar. Keep looking at him. Don't be diverted to other things. <laughs> I said, all right, yeah, that makes sense. All right, so that was in my mind. So there I was, my turn. I kneeled down, and I looked him straight in the eye as my father had advised. I believe what he was thinking at that point with me doing that was the little so-and-so, he's outstaring me. How dare him do that? I saw, I saw his hand go back. No, he's in the golden chair, and I'm kneeling in front of him. I saw his hand go back like he would for everyone else, and then I have never heard a slap like that across my face so bad that I fell over on the altar. Oh, my gosh. I fell over. I was on my side thinking, oh. what just happened? What, what in the world just happened? I, I got back on my knees, and my face was hurting so bad, and I was stunned. I, I honestly didn't know what had happened, and I got up and somehow got back to the pew, and then, then the, um, the, the, the whole mess ended. And at that point, my, my parents and my sister came up to me, and my dad says, I got to tell you, what the hell did you say to him to make him so furious at you? And I said, Dad, I followed what you said. I was just looking right at him and not being diverted with these other things. He said, oh, my, my mother, Nick, your face is, is, you can see the finger marks in your cheek. Oh, my gosh. And the rings are embedded in your cheek. The ring impressions, you can see oh where gosh. they are. That's how bad it was. And you know what, Paul? I got to tell you, the reason I'm telling you this little story, this is true, is that, you know what? He did me a favor because I thought, what is wrong with this? What is, and I thought, a lot is wrong with this. This can't be right. It was one yeah. of those turning points. So, anyhow, I, I had to yeah. share that with you, with the listeners. There you tonight. go. That's a spiritual moment in your life where you pivoted. And, you know, I, when I was 10, I was actually kicked out of the church. I was kicked out of the church for wanting to hear the minister speak. And because I was just a kid, I, I wasn't allowed to stay in there. I had, they, they literally forced every kid to go to Sunday school because they wouldn't inter, even entertain the idea that maybe a kid really wanted to stay and hear the sermon. Oh, and I boy. loved this minister. He was the minister I grew up with, and I missed him. He reminded me he had a radiant warmth about him that reminded me of Jesus. And when my mom quit going when I was eight, I missed him. And uh, and so when I was 10, which was a very pivotal time in my life, uh, I told my mom I want to go hear the minister speak. And she said, okay. She said, I'll take you and drop you off, and you can walk home. I said, fine. So she dropped me off, and I knew the ritual, you know, that for 20 minutes the kids were in the main service, and then after 20 minutes were over, and we did the congregation minister ritual thing. This was in the Episcopal Church, that the children left for Sunday school. And I thought, okay, I know I'm supposed to go to Sunday school, but the whole reason I came here was to hear Father Myers speak. Mm -hmm. And so I got up to leave, and then I, I ducked into the very back pew, and I thought, you know, if I just sit here and not say anything, they'll let me stay. Well, he actually looked back and winked at me, and I thought, you know, wow, okay, I'm, I'm okay, you know. Well, it wasn't long after that that this church lady started looking all around to see who was in church that day, and she looked over her shoulder, and she saw me, and she got up, and, you know, he had just started his sermon. 
she got up and walked all the way to the back where I was sitting in the pew, and she got right in my face and told me, you can't stay here. You must go with the other children. And I got a big lump in my throat, and I turned, I must have turned red as a beet because I could just feel the heat come into my face, right? And I got up and in disgrace walked out of the church. Oh, my goodness. Oh, and boy. again, I stood on the front step and I told God on their por- on the porch of the church, I stood on the front porch of the church and I told God, I will never set foot in this church again. Wow. And I didn't, except once, and that was for my father's funeral. Okay, okay. But I never what set foot in that a, church again. Oh, what a story. What, these that. people, they've got such, some of the people there, I mean, they're, they're good people too, but the the ones you're describing, I mean, it's just horrendous the way that they treat people, the way they, they stop you from learning, from, from searching for truth, and they're right. actually stopping you and saying, no, you're too young, or no, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. How, I mean, and how here crazy. you were, just doing what your father told you to do. You were being right, a good boy. Good, it was good. It was good advice. It made perfect yeah. sense to me. Yeah. Um, another thing they did at the church, I got to say one more thing that really made me made me stop and think. Uh, they had sent envelopes to everybody, all the families, uh, the members of the church, and they they figured out how much you should send for the year, how much mm-hmm. money you should send to the church for the year, and somehow they figured this out. I mean, how in the world they did that, I don't know. Now some of these families have many children, and so. Some people, of course, mailed in their what they were told to mail in, and some of these families, you know, weren't wealthy families at all. Couldn't afford they, they, it. They couldn't afford. So, and here it comes, Paul. You, listen to this. On the pulpit, a month later, he, the priest said, "I'm now going to read to this parish the names of all the families who haven't given their fair share yet." Oh my gosh. Like, Public what? shaming. <laughs> shaming these people? Oh, I mean, it was just, I, I felt so bad for all the families whose names were read on the altar oh. at the pulpit. And I thought, no, this, this is, Jesus would, Jesus would not want this. This, this is Jesus so would not do this. <laughs> on so many levels and hurting these, people, these poor people who were going to church trying to do the right thing. And I got very angry at that. And I said, you know what? I'm out of here. There's got to be something better. There's got to be. And this isn't it. (laughs) Well, and here's the story of Jesus and the widow, right? As he observed the widow give her might, and it was all she had. And he pointed out to his apostles, you see her. She has nothing, and yet she gives all she has. And he honored her for giving what she could. You know, he, he wouldn't dream of shaming anybody for not being able to give more. Exactly. And to do it in such a way, in a a church, the the holy holy place, to do that, it just seemed like it was so wrong. Again, it was one of those red flags that went up and said, you know what, one of my aunts was a sister superior in the Catholic Church, you know. She was a very Mm -hmm. tiny, cute little nun, I loved her so much. She was full of the Dickens, by the way. She wore the white <laughs> collar and the long black dress with the beads. And she really, I loved her so much. And she was such a live wire. 
And she was one of the good parts of uh, my early childhood of what I was thinking about the church. But the other parts of that were overshadowing, unfortunately, uh, her. And I met a lot of the the nuns, the sisters, where where she, uh, the parish. And they were wonderful. They were terrific people, and I liked them a lot. But this other stuff, somehow, no. Somehow, no, this is not going to happen. So anyhow, I just wanted to share that with you, Paula. <laughs> well, that's, that's you know, I mean, you know, there's a there's a section in the book that Jesus, you know, it's it's the second discourse on religion. You know which one I'm talking about? I think I do. And in that discourse, and I'll just read a little bit, it's just one paragraph oh, from there, but this is this is just a taste of what Jesus in the Arantia book says to his apostles. He's telling them essentially, there's two discourses in there, the discourse on religion and the second discourse on religion. And um, the di- I think it's the discourse on true religion and the second discourse on religion. And he tells them that he's called them out of all of that, the fear, the, the darkness of lethargy and the, the, you know, fear of tradition into the transcendent light of discovering for themselves that they can find God in themselves, of themselves and for themselves and, and do all of this as a fact of their own personal experience. And in that discourse, he says, and he, and he, and he characterizes religions of authority versus the religion of the spirit which the religion of the spirit is the religion that leaves you forever free to follow where truth may lead you Mm. and to discover all the wonderful things about god and the universe that your heart craves to know and so uh you know versus a religion of authority that that is just a passive assent to believe what someone else tells you to believe and to not have a choice about that at all to just mm-hmm. it's handed down to you and you don't have any choice you just have to accept it right which is what you know the priests and the clergy and the and the shamans and whoever takes religious authority over children and people in general have have done over the centuries so jesus says this to his apostles he says while the religion of authority may impart a present feeling of settled security you pay for such a transient satisfaction the price of the loss of your spiritual freedom and religious liberty my father does not require of you as the price of entering the kingdom of heaven that you should force yourself to subscribe to a belief in things which are spiritually repugnant unholy and untruthful it is not required of you that your own sense of mercy justice and truth should be outraged by submission to an outworn system of religious forms and ceremonies the religion of the spirit leaves you forever free to follow the truth wherever the leadings of the spirit may take you and who can judge perhaps this spirit may have something to impart to this generation which other generations have refused to hear. So your story, this conversation reminds me of this quote, you know, that we don't have to subject ourselves to things that are spiritually repugnant, unholy and untruthful, and that our own sense of mercy, justice, and truth 
should not be outraged by submission to an outworn system of religious forms and ceremonies. Right on the money on that one. Yeah, that's Jesus, of course. (laughs) He's right on the money about everything. (laughs) Don't we know? That's why the Orenta book has been such truly a revelation uh, to to me and everyone who reads it, because what, what we're reading resonates. It resonates big time. And you're thinking, this is what, in my heart, I was hoping for. This is what I kind of knew was somewhere that right. I needed to find, right? And, and, and I found it by reading this book. Yeah. And it, it's just a huge. It really makes such a difference in your life. <laughs> it's one big yeah. affirmation for me. I mean, it was like, this is my God. <laughs> this is the God I've longed for. This is my Jesus. This, oh, you know, Jesus said, you know, the, the good shepherd enters the sheepfold through the gate, and the sheep will come to him because they know his voice. Well, when I read the Arantia book, I hear his voice in my heart, I, his beautiful, melodic voice. And I know, I know it's him. Mm-hmm. You know, he, his spirit of truth bears witness with me. And I've just read it with that the whole book with that in mind. If it grinds against you, don't believe it. <laughs> just like that lady told me, never seen her before nor since. But those words, never truer is, words were spoken. <laughs> right. That's amazing, too, that she came into your life very briefly and then gone. But what she said, <laughs> that's, so, that's so interesting. Well, I've come you to know? think that that's how God works in people's lives. You know, he, he uses other people because God is omnipresent. He is in all of his children, right, to one degree or another, and especially those that are born of the Spirit. And... uh and if they're so moved to share something with you, then God reaches us that way. Often when we pray, it's another, it's a fellow believer who answers our prayer, you know. And uh, she she answered my prayer. And she absolutely really does. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, then you take what the Urantia book is saying, what resonates to you, and then you use it in your life. Mm-hmm. And you pass that on to other people in, in many different ways. It might be a kindness. It might be right. something that you're, you're, you're there for someone who is grieving or you're there for someone who needs just a couple of bucks more to get them through that month. Right. You're there. You're, you're because you're, your brothers and sisters are there, and you know that, and you know that they're your brothers and sisters, and you know that love is the way to go. And once you get that, once you understand that, and that's from the Urantia book, you know what? It makes it easy to live a good life. Yeah, here's another quote, Nick, just on what you just said. Uh, This is from Paper 117, which is uh, God the Supreme. It says, all true love is from God, and man receives the divine affection as he himself bestows this love upon his fellows. Love is dynamic. It can never be captured. It is alive, free, thrilling, and always moving. Man can never take the love of the Father and imprison it within his heart. The Father's love can become real to mortal man only by passing through that man's personality as he in turn bestows this love upon his fellows. The great circuit of love is from the Father through sons to brothers and hence to the Supreme. 
the love of the Father appears in the mortal personality by the ministry of the indwelling adjuster, the fragment of God within. Such a God-knowing Son reveals this love to his universe brethren, and this fraternal affection is the essence of the love of the Supreme. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, boy, you got me again, Paul. You really did. This goes on all the time. You read a passage <laughs> like that, and you really have to stop and collect yourself, right? Because yes. you've heard the truth. You have heard the truth, and yes. you and it's undeniable, and it's beautiful, and it's totally loving. And, and it, it resonates so deeply. It does. Yeah. It does. And you know you're on the right track. You just know it. And that is such a secure feeling, a loving feeling that you are on the right path. And right. you know what? I've never looked back because this, there, it just goes on and on in this book. Especially, <laughs> I love the part of the book, like you were saying, because um, from the very beginning, any quote from Jesus always resonated to me. Um, yeah, me and, too. And thought, right? It was like one of those things that got it. Okay, right on the money. Sign me up. I'm, I'm, I'm a follower. <laughs> Sign me up right now. I'm good. Right? Because that's how you feel. That's, that's exactly what it does to you. It, it's such an amazing blessing to have. And it's so oh. real. Right? I, you, I know, know Nick, you know, if this book isn't really a revelation, <laughs> if this what book is? isn't what it claims to be, what? I would love to see the real deal. Because this thing spiritually, you know, enthralls me. I have never seen anything that comes close. Nothing comes close. And I have read every spiritual book I can get my hands on, including The Course in Miracles, which I love. Mm -hmm. But nothing comes close to the Urantia book for me. Nothing does. If this isn't a revelation, I'd love to see one. Mm -hmm. If this isn't the real deal, I'd love to see the real deal because this thing, (laughs) (laughs) it's amazing. So, yeah, that's. It's a gift, and it's a gift for your whole life and beyond. And, you know, another part of this, and you kind of mentioned it uh, briefly, Paula, is that, you know, uh, being a gay man in in New York City, dealing with the AIDS crisis that hit us like a ton of bricks. And all of a sudden, I was going to many hospitals and, and, and being with friends who had been stricken with AIDS. Mm-hmm. And it was a time when they really didn't know how to fight it. And I was right. seeing dear, dear friends, wonderful people, slowly failing, failing in the hospitals and slowly dying. And I was there for some of those dear friends when they did pass on. And this book, I can't begin to tell you what a relief it was trying to deal with this situation. And it, was, it went on and on for years. And this book saved me. It absolutely helped me get through uh, to, to one of the worst things going on ever was to lose your dear friends, especially young people at the time that were in their oh, 20s yeah. and 30s, 40s, and thinking, this can't be happening. And yet it was happening. And, you know, yeah. it, it was something to deal with on so many levels. Um, I, I, two of my dear friends were uh, lovers, uh, loved each other so much, and one was Jewish and one was Catholic. And when their insurance kicked in, when they were both sick at the same time, they had to be in separate hospitals mm. because they 
insurance would it fit them to be in the same hospital? And they never saw each other again. I have a dear, dear friend, a dear, dear friend who lost his partner after 12 years. And the partner was an adorable human being. My friend is a doctor, and his partner used to call himself a doctor's wife, <laughs> which was so touching to me. And now, you know, I'm so glad that that they can officially be a couple if they want to be. I think that is so important. That's one of the most important things that's ever happened in our country in my life is that oh, that absolutely. right for for them to be together. But when he, when his part when his uh, partner uh, was dying of AIDS, my friend couldn't go see him because he was an immediate family. Ouch. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah, that goes and, on. That went on for years. Oh my gosh. It's just unbelievable that, you know, that what happened in that crisis. That was horrible. That the gay community was decimated. And it it's heartbreaking. And as you know, we have lots of great Urantia friends who are gay. And yeah. the Urantia book makes no social edicts about that. You know, you know, it, it, it admonishes us all to be loving in our lives and to be conscious and to try and master our own appetites and whatever else always, you know, to be self-actualized, to be the best people we can be, to keep striving for God and goodness in our lives. But it says nothing about social behaviors, <laughs> you know, that's well, you know what you're saying? We identify with a very big deal with me because I, I, I became a gay activist, and I did a, quite yeah. a lot. I still am for the community, uh, not only locally but nationally. And, and so when I was going through the Arantia book, you bet I was looking for any paragraphs that would address that issue. And like you said, there was nothing negative at all about mm-hmm. that. Nothing. Mm-hmm. And I was... I was relieved, and I also I thought it's not going to be in this book. That kind of nonsense is not going to, and it wasn't. And that was a very big deal to me. It still is. <laughs> it's a huge deal, and you know, I, and I'm so glad that of all the wonderful gay men and 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 women that I've met in the Urantia movement, because they are splendid human beings. Beautiful, magnificent, creative, smart, loving. I just, I treasure my gay friends, treasure them. And, you know, I can't even imagine. All brothers and sisters, and when you get that message, it doesn't matter what color a person is, it doesn't matter. Or sexual orientation. Right. All of that. What matters is the fact that we are all in the same family and we have to love each other. In our hearts and in our actions, we yes. sing right. day because we have to reflect. You know, a wonderful little tiny prayer that I love. So so simple. It says, uh, "Father, Heavenly Father, make me the instrument today of Your limitless love." Yes, that's beautiful. It. That's everything when you think of it. Well, here's something Jesus said about that, and I love to remind Christians of this, and I love to remind especially Christians because they say they love Jesus, and if they do love him, then they should remember what he meant by this. He said, 
you know, when they asked him, how will we know our brothers? He said, you will know them by their fruits. Now think about that. Can you know if someone is kind, if you never spend any time with them, or if you write them off because of the color of their skin or because of their social caste, because they're poor, or because they're uh, gay, or because they're, you know, not in your church? Because he didn't say that. He didn't say you will know them by the book that they read. You will know them by the church that they go to. You will know them by their sexual orientation. He didn't say that. He said you will know them by their fruits. And if you and and essentially what he's saying then is take the time to get to know them because you can't know if they're kind and loving and loyal and honest and trustworthy. You can't decide that in an instant. You have to see them in many different situations in life to see a person's fruits, right? You have to spend some time with a person to see their fruits. So before you judge them, and that's another thing he said, judge not lest you be judged. For with the spirit that you judge, so will you be judged. You know, in other words, that's going to reciprocate to you. If you're throwing that out there, it's going to come back to you. And he Mm -hmm. said that too. As you sow, so shall you reap. You put out that hate, that hate's going to come back to you. You put out that prejudice and that attitude, that nastiness, that's all coming back, baby. (laughs) You know? Uh, It's a choice. You're absolutely right. It's a choice. You get to be, uh, you get to choose. You get to choose your life. You get to choose who you're going to be, and how you're going to treat other people. You do. That's exactly right. And those are your fruits, right? You get to choose what fruits you manifest. And if somebody's looking for the fruits, if you're trying hard to be a good person, they'll see them in you, and they'll love you for it. And it won't matter. Any superficial thing won't matter. What church you go to or what book you read, come on. That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about the fruits of your spirit. Do you love? Are you kind? Are you loyal? Are you honest? Are you sincere? Are you sympathetic? This is what Jesus was talking about. Knowing people by their fruits. What what an exciting show. Our hour zooms by very, very quickly. (laughs) Um, It always does, Hercules. Yes, it does. Uh, Thank you, Paula, for being such an awesome guest. Um, My pleasure. Put uh, your picture up uh, on the uh, t- my timeline on Facebook a few times, uh, and I put down where folks can access the uh, Urantia book uh, online for free. Is there any other link you'd like me to include? Did you you put down the one Nick said www.urantiabook.org? Yes. And one of my Welcome. favorites is www.truthbook.com. Oh yeah. <laughs> Those are two very good sites to find and, the arrangement you know, book, I, research it, study it, the whole nine yards. And I have given people uh, the um, that uh, place on the uh, internet where you can ask for a quote to be sent to you every single day with a photograph or a piece of art that reflects the quote from the Arantia book. And people have come back to me and said that is one of the high points every morning that starts them off on the right foot is to get a quote from the Rancher book. And, and through Truth Book, you can request that. And you can also yeah, request quote of the that day. for your pet. And yeah. I've gotten feedback. And they said, Nick, how wonderful. 
uh, this, this is, I never knew about this, and it really helps me to start my day on the right foot. So I <laughs> wanted to put that in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Thank you. And Nick, and I put uh, links to uh, you and your book New York and also to your Facebook site. Uh, is there any place else you'd like me to link to? Paul, is there anything else you can think of? Uh, I can't think of a thing. You know, just type in your ranch in the search engines and see what comes up. There's great okay. videos out there. Yeah, oh, There's yeah, a there lot are. of great. Gary Tong, T-O-N-G-E, has done wonderful videos on the Arantia book. So just type in his name, Gary Tong, T-O-N-G-E, and you'll see some amazing videos. Okay, I will do that, and I will include a link to those as well. Vision Afar is his site. Right, right. Also on the uh, UrantiaBook.org has a listing uh, of all the different states and, and towns where there's a study group that you can go for free and be with your brothers and sisters and read and discuss the Urantia book. And right. that is absolute gold. And see if there's a place there uh, in, where, in your area uh, that, that you, can, you can go and access that. And please give that a try. Uh, Paula, also on, online, uh, tell me, now you have a, uh, is it a, is it a podcast? Yes, I actually have a blog talk radio show every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. It's called The Cosmic Citizen, and we interview wonderful guests from all over the spiritual uh, you know, world and uh, all interfaith, different faiths, and we study the Urantia book together a lot. There's four hosts on that show, and we all work together, and that's every morning for the last uh, 10 years. Wow. Uh, the Cosmic Citizen. I will put a link to that uh, as well. Paula, thank you for oh, being a guest. Awesome. And I'm sure that My Nick pleasure. is going to very soon. I know I would like to hear more of your uh, spiritual adventure and your spiritual understandings. And Nick, as always, thank you for inviting excellent guests and uh, uh, putting together an excellent show. Thank uh, you, love, Hercules. Love to everyone. Love to everyone. Ha- happy St. Valentine's Day. And Paula, especially you. Thank you so much for all the love that you radiate. You certainly do. My pleasure, Nick. Thank you. Happy Valentine's okay. Day. To you as well. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to listen to a very short song. Um, Becca Kelso's Odyssey. Um, and then we'll be back with part two of our program hosted by Bill Waitman.
of Olympus. I am Hercules Invictus, and today I'm your producer and engineer. I am greatly honored to announce a new segment hosted by Bill Waitman, uh, Mythic Combat. Uh, And today we're going to learn about the legends of boxing here in New Jersey, and we're going to speak to an individual uh, who has done much to preserve the legacy of this ancient sport. Greetings and welcome, Bill. How are you? Very well. Thank you. And uh, it's a pleasure to have the gentleman we have on. Are, are you yes, there, Henry? Yes, I'm here. I'm here. Henry, I'll let you uh, Hercules, there. Hercules did some amazing research. So <laughs> we've been posting things about you, even yeah. uh, a piece about uh, how you put together a blended family. I don't know if you oh. remember that. Uh, yeah, uh, I do. In fact, it, it's almost 30 two, years two now. Married to her. Yeah, we had. Well, I was a single parent of four kids and a Siberian Husky, and I met this young lady. Uh, she was also a single parent of four kids and a Siberian Husky, and we kind of hitched up, and uh, we even took in two more kids. So uh, we had ten kids, two Siberian Huskies, and it's almost <laughs> 30 years now. <laughs> yeah, it's, in March it'll be 30 years, so it, 30 it worked years. out. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, Let thanks. The dogs different genders, or you know? No, they were both they were male. Men. They were both male. So amazing. Uh, he's. We've been posting things about you. Actually, he has that are amazing. Hercules, can you hear me? I guess he, he's, he's probably doing the background. I yeah. I'm here. Uh, you talking I'm about? checking sound levels and stuff. <laughs> okay, I was just telling you. Yeah, you're, you're an amazing him about individual. The stuff that you posted. Oh, okay. I, I didn't see nothing, so I, but that's all right. <laughs> you we can't have, believe everything you read. That's what I always say. <laughs> well, you you came out pretty good. Um, okay. 
you did you start the New Jersey Boxing Hall of Fame? I mean, I know you. No, no, it was started back in 1968. It was a brainchild of a guy by the name of Adrian Bailey. He he lived down uh, South Jersey, and uh, he was an all-around athlete in track and baseball, soccer, lacrosse. But he loved boxing. He got into amateur boxing, even then managing a couple of pro fighters and everything. And then uh, he started up this New Jersey Boxing Hall of Fame, and uh, actually it was November 8th, 1968. That's when it was founded. And, uh, you know, it, it took it took off from there. I've been president for the last, well, I'm in my 34th year. I was elected president in 85, and um, I took over in January of 86. Yeah. I, I can't remember what you came from before. I don't know if it was a, a radio show. I, I remember reading it on on Hercules piece. Do you, you remember where you came from before that? Where I came from? What do you mean? Uh, before you got into uh, the Boxing Hall of Fame. Well, I I, I was uh, always interested in sports as a kid. I grew up in Patterson. Uh, in fact, I was in a couple of foster homes and everything like this. But uh, when I got out of there, uh, my uh, my father, he was interested in baseball and boxing. That's all he talked about. And I even remember my first fight. It was in 1958 uh, in December. We got a black and white TV. He said, oh, you're going to see one of the greatest fighters in, in boxing history. You know, so, so he put it on. It was 10 o'clock at night. I stayed up. I think it was like a Wednesday night. And uh, it was Archie Moore. And uh, he oh, gets knocked down like two or three times in the first round. And I looked at him, looked at my father, and I said, he's the great, he's one of the greatest fighters. <laughs> so he looks at me and he's, well, the fight's not over yet. And, of course, uh, you know, Moore got up and uh, he knocked uh, Darrell out late in the late rounds. Uh, it was one of the greatest he, fights what, in boxing uh, history. But I know but, Archie was an older fighter. But how old was he then, do you think? Well... You know, he was probably in his late 30s. You know, nobody really knows exactly when he was born. That's that's the thing. Uh, you know, his mother had one one uh, one thing, and uh, you know, his uh, he said it was something else. So, you know, who the heck knows? You know, you know, the, some of the dates uh, when you go way back. You know, for people, and uh, you know, they they didn't keep track of. Uh, you know of uh, all the the you know the dates and when they were born and everything like this. He's listed it. He was born like in, in 1916, so he'd had to be uh, like 42 years old at the time. So I, I know I, I know he that I've actually seen him fight too, probably on TV. And I don't know if he ever he wasn't a heavyweight, but he did fight. He went up and down in weight, right? Well, he started off as a middleweight, and then. Uh, being a black fighter, and this is Black History Month, too. I did, just did a segment on Black History Month for another radio show. But, uh, you know, he never really got a shot at the title until later on in his life. I mean, he, you know, he took a long time before he even got a got a, uh, even a smell at the title. I mean, yeah, he finally got Joey Maxim in the ring. and uh, you know, he, Yeah, oh, yeah, very, very excellent, excellent fighter. And he, you know he he beat him and uh, he beat him a couple times and of course he won the light heavyweight championship of the world and uh, you know that that started it off and he held that title for a long time and then uh, he always wanted the uh, the heavyweight title and uh, you know he challenged twice of course one of them was against uh, Rocky Marciano 
And uh, he actually floored Marciano in the early rounds, but wow. uh, Marciano was uh, just too uh, too strong, too strong of a hitter, and all the aggressiveness and everything like this. He, he just, uh, you know, he overwhelmed uh, Moore. And then, of course, Moore, uh, uh, Rocky actually retired after that fight, and um, then there was elimination bouts, and uh, Patterson, Floyd Patterson, and uh, Archie Moore fought for the title. About a year later, in 1956, and um, in a, uh, you know, uh, Floyd was only 21 years old at the time, and of course Archie was like 20 years older than him, and uh, you know Floyd, you know, was just too quick for him. And then of course uh, Archie even fought Muhammad Ali when he was Cassius Clay. I remember that. Yeah, I remember he, that. Know, Cassius say says more and four, you know, so. So he, you know, he he was a called a mongoose. I mean, you know, he, he had a lot of knockouts, 131, I believe, 131 knockouts, and you know, I think it's 132. Uh, yeah, I think it's 132. But uh, you know, some people even said he has 145. But a lot, a lot of them were uh, were amateur bouts. Uh, you I, know, I have a long friend. Uh, yeah. he's, Go ahead. He's 90 90 something years old, and he I, I know he's singing. The, Sing with Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash. Uh, he's, uh, I ran for office and he supported me, and he was a mayor up there. And everything he told me, um, I was able to prove. He told me that uh, he boxed in the garden a number of times, and I never was able to prove it. Uh, he did a lot of work like Jack Dempsey traveling around the country. When they say oh. riding the rails, what do they mean? Do they mean riding the oh, trains or riding and, underneath the trains? Riding underneath the trains, like like Jack Dempsey, you know, he he, he rode the rails for uh, in the beginning of his career. He he was actually um, they called him Kid Blackie, you know, because he had <laughs> jet black hair, and uh, he he was kind of poor. He came from Colorado and uh, Utah areas, and uh, he would ride, you know, underneath. The, sometime he would go into box cars, but most of the time he'd have to have to hold himself underneath the rails, and uh, you know that's what they call under, you know, riding the rails. And he just uh, oh, you know, took God. off, you know. And, but, Let me uh, ask you, you know, about that. I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I apologize for that. No, that's okay. But, uh, I want to ask you a lot of questions. Some of them are on my mind. Uh, one was I was just watching today. Um, the two Joe Lewis fights with Max Schmeling. And Oh yeah. Uh, well well the first first one, um you know, Lewis you know, was you know, I guess he he came up very quick. He he was uh, you know, early very early twenties at the time and uh, he he kinda they said he was partying and everything and took took Max a little lightly. But Max uh, saw a flaw in Lewis. He, uh, when Lewis threw a left jab, you know, he he didn't bring it back where he was supposed to. He threw a left jab and then brought it back lower than he should have. And Max seen that, and he kept it a secret until uh, until he fought him. So when he brought the left jab back, Max came over with a right hand, and, uh, you know, he knocked him down in the early in the fight, and then he knocked him out, you know, later on. You know, it was a tremendous upset. But, uh, you know, Max, uh, he, um, you know, he did his homework. And then, of course, uh, two years later, well, actually a year later, uh, Joe Lewis won the heavyweight championship of the world against James J. Braddock. Now, uh, right. you know, actually smelling should have fought Braddock, but uh, 
you know, the way the politics were and everything like this. They didn't, they didn't want him. Yeah, they didn't want him to fight him. And, but they fought but Joe Lewis. And Joe Lewis was the first uh, black fighter to fight for the title since uh, since Jack Johnson. You know, when Jack Johnson uh, lost the title in 1915. So it was over 20 years. You know, you're talking about that, 22 that's years. That's where the term the White Hope came from, Jack, yeah. Jack Johnson? Yeah, yeah, we, we can go into that. But then... Um, then in 1930, you know, um, Lewis, uh, of course, knocked out uh, James J. Braddock to win the heavyweight championship of the world. But he never considered himself a champion until he he would match against uh, Max Smelling. And then uh, the fight, uh, you know, I mean, that it was, um, you know, I mean, it was one of the greatest uh, spectacles you'd ever want to see. I mean, uh, it, you know, it was America against Germany and, you know, the Nazis. That's against, what I was hoping. You know, yeah, yeah, and there was uh, so much division, and so many Americans. I'm sure, black yeah, Jewish people the thing were was, out there. You know, they, you know, they, they, they didn't like smelling very much, but uh, you know, I mean, Lewis walked right through him in the second fight. He was ready for him, and he just, uh, you know, he just, just creamed him right in the first Lee, round. It was uh, that's it was, the fight uh, I was watching, and Lewis always had his left hand sticking out. Yeah, uh, well, was that he the kind change? of measured him. Yeah, he kind of measured the guy. Well, when Smelling uh, fought him the first time, you know, Lewis, uh, you know, like I said, he threw a jab, but when he brought his left hand back, he brought it a little low, and Smelling came over with a right hand. Smelling was noted for a good right hand. But uh, getting back, back to Smelling, you know, the fight took place in Yankee Stadium. You know, and, uh, you know, big crowd over there. And, of course, uh, you know, when uh, Lewis uh, knocked Smelling out, I mean, I mean yeah, the, the the TV stations and the radio stations, I guess, in uh, Germany, I guess it was the radio at the time, radio stations in Germany, they, they clicked it off before uh, <laughs> before Lewis knocked him out. But uh, Smelling was was really a, a real nice guy. I mean, he, he was, I know. you know, I mean, you know, you know, he got a bad rap because he was a German. But even when smelling, uh, when Lewis needed money and uh, needed help, I mean, Max came to his rescue. Max and, uh, uh, of course, Frank Sinatra. I mean, they, you know, they helped him out immensely. And uh, you know, I mean, smelling. He, he was lived, working uh, on it. Yeah, he lived almost to a hundred years old. That guy. He had a lot of. I mean, he had troubles uh, after the war, but. I think that Schmeling buried Lewis. I think he paid for the grave. Uh, yeah, he burial. did. Well, the thing was, he came into money because he he got hooked up with the Coca Cola company. Oh God! And uh, he made millions on that. And uh, you know, I have a picture of him and his wife in in a, uh, like in a gathering. Like it looks like a living room, and Hitler is in that picture. I mean, okay. you, know, you know, when I bring people <laughs> over, they they can't believe it. Oh my God, that's Hitler, and that's smelling, you know. <laughs> you know, but, I, I heard him say that he never was a Nazi. Uh, no, no, he, but, you know, like I said, he 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 was a a nice guy. I mean, you know, when he came back after he lost to Lewis, you know, they really dis like almost disowned him. You know, they put him on the front lines of the war and everything like this, and you know, in World War Two. But uh, he survived and everything, and he outlived them all, you know. So, uh, you know, he, when I remember when he died, uh, they asked me to, like, uh, I, I was ring announcing a show in New York, and they asked me to do a little little segment on him, you know. And, you know, so that's what I did. And 
I, I ring, you know, have the, them ring the bell. And uh, I guess you know I, I only ring the bell nine times instead of ten because I, I feel, the, um, you know, the person, uh, a little bit of the person is still with us. You know, he's in the I heart of, right. of his family you, uh, and his fans and his friends. And, you know, he's going to live on as long as we want him to. You know, as lo- like we're talking about smelling now, like he's alive. You know, he's been dead for quite a while, you know, and so, you know, so it, it really took off when I, I started doing that a long time ago. Uh, back in the 80s, I started doing it, and I've done I, I know close to 300, yeah, I've wow. done close to 300 eulogies uh, in nine counts for former fighters and uh, from around the whole you metropolitan You did something area. recently uh, in the last couple of years for Jimmy Braddock, and you brought up that Lewis Braddock fight, and I think Lewis said that was the hardest punch he ever took uh, from Braddock. I think it was like in the ninth round. Um, well, he lost the fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you got kind yeah. words. Yeah, well, well, um, Braddock uh, actually dropped Lewis. Uh, like uh, I think it was the first round or something like this. You know, he dropped him. Uh, yeah, it was in the first round, uh, and uh, Lewis uh, knocked Braddock out in the eighth. But getting back to uh, Jim Braddock, James J. Braddock, he uh, he was like the North North Bergen he came from, and they put up a statue of uh, Braddock at a, at the James J. Braddock Park, and they asked me to come down to be the MC, and uh, you know I introduced all the fighters and all the dignitaries that, from the boxing world that was there, you know, including Jerry Cooney, Larry Hazard, uh, Chuck Webner, okay. Pat Murphy, you know, <clears throat> you know. Uh, guys like that and uh you know i had to tell a little story about uh james j braddock and uh yeah, it turned out very well i mean the statue was uh, uh really fabulous a huge statue and uh you know we had the unveiling and uh i even had a nine count for him so it was uh, oh, it was pretty pretty cool you know to be in, involved in stuff like that and uh you know i, it, I felt it, honored it, you know I had signed, uh, my father was mad about it because I, I took his shoes, shine kid when he was a kid, but I signed them right next to that park by, uh, by an ice cream stand over there in a diner on the corner. Oh, um, okay. And uh, when the movie came out uh, with Russell Crowe, I yeah. was in London, and I put a piece in, a, and I guess it was the uh, London Times or the whatever, and I put it in some papers here about him. But uh, yeah. he was somebody in our area because I grew up in Richfield, which is Richfield Fairview, which is uh, pretty close to North Bergen. I mean, oh yeah, I yeah. Well, like I said, uh, or whatever. You know, Braddock. He was on, um, you know, welfare and everything like this, and uh, you know, people, people, um, you know, came to the to churches, you know, during the night of the fight, and they weren't they were praying, you know, that he would survive. Because uh, Max Bear, he had one of the hardest punches of all time. I mean, his right hand was uh, second to none. He killed a guy in the ring, and uh, and actually he contributed to another death. So people were really scared because uh, Jim Braddock, uh, it, you know, when when he was on welfare, I mean, he, you know, and, and before that, he 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 was he was on the down end of his career. I mean, he fought for the light heavyweight championship of the world against right. Tommy Loughran. Uh, Many years ago, but uh, now, I mean, he he was really, you know, on really down, you know, as far as uh, contenders go. But then when he made his comeback, you know, nobody gave him, uh, you know, a chance at all from uh, from beating, uh, 
you know, the heavyweight champion of the world, and he he was like a ten to one or fifteen to one underdog, and uh, you know he won a, a unanimous decision. I, yeah, I th- well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it was a unanimous decision. So uh, I mean, it was just uh, you know one of the greatest upsets. I guess uh, maybe uh, Buster Douglas and Mike Tyson might have been a little bit better. But the only thing about the movie I didn't like is the way they portrayed uh, Max Bear. You know, you know, most of the people that knew him knew he wasn't, you know, he wasn't that way. You know, he wasn't, a, you know, um, you know, going after somebody's wife like that, you know. So, uh, yeah, know, but yeah. I guess that's Hollywood. Because even if you yeah. go to Reuben Hurricane Carter, you know, they We they talked had the about movie. this. Can you go into that story a little yeah, bit? Yeah, well, you, you know, I, in fact, I... I I came from Patterson, you know, that's that's where I, um, you know, when I came out of the foster homes and everything like this, I, I lived in Patterson with my with my parents, and uh, one day I was in Riverside Oval, and uh, all of a sudden I seen a bunch of black guys come into the into the Oval, and I'm saying to my friends, that's Reuben Carter, and, and you know, of course my friends they they don't follow boxing at the time, you know, you know like I did. He said, and I said, man, that's one of the best fighters in the world right there. He said, oh, you're full of it. I said, what? So I yelled out, hey, Ruben. And all of a sudden he, he turns and looks our way. And, of course, I was kind of embarrassed. I looked the other way, you know. <laughs> he wouldn't look at me, you know. But then uh, we followed him. He he went across the street to the bowling alleys. And, uh, you know, he seen me with the other kids. And he says, hey, kid, uh, you know how to keep score? And I said, yeah. Hey, come on down and keep score. So I kept score for him and uh maybe three or four of his friends. And uh, I remember him smoking pell-mell. And here here I'm, a, you know, a kid, and I'm saying, I said, you're not supposed to smoke. You're, you're an athlete, you know. And he says, oh, I'm a, I'm not in training right now. I said, oh, it's still no good for you. <laughs> so so he just laughed. And then uh, one day he, he was actually, um, he played softball, he, you know, and uh, he played softball one, one uh, morning. I think it was either Saturday or Sunday morning. And uh, at the Riverside Oval, and um, he he was pitching, and he seen me, and he says, "Hey kid, you want to be a bat boy?" And so I just ran down there, and I, so you know he was really really good to me. But um, you know even when he knocked yeah, out yeah. Emil Griffith, I felt you know like uh, like the world. I, hey, I know this guy, you know, but uh, you know as far as uh, you know his career and everything like this, he was on a downside. You know when when he was uh, arrested and everything like this, and you know years later, yeah, years later, I guess it was 1967. My my father passed away on April April 21st, 1967. He was like 70 years old, and uh, I guess the teacher felt bad for me, and he asked me if I would go down to um, the courthouse in uh, in Patterson to uh, just give a report. On, on a case that's going on, and I said, "Oh man, I don't want to do that." You know, to myself. And he says, uh, "Yeah, the case I want you to do is uh, Reuben Hurricane Carter and John Artist." I said, "Oh, you know." So I, w- I went down and sat in the back. I took notes and everything like this. But you know, it was kind of boring. You know, I mean, for for I guess I was 18 at the time, and uh, but uh, you know, just to see him and John Artist, and you know, but um, you know. You know the whole case and everything like this. It was, uh, you know, it, it, it was rough. Uh, you know, I, you know, to me, you know, I, I, w- I would say there was a good chance that he did do the murders. I mean, I, you know, I don't think the, the, the film, you know, was uh, very accurate. Even with the, the police guy, 
you know, the head the head guy. I mean, uh, we knew him. I mean, he was a down to earth guy, and you know, he's one of the one of the true true uh, good guys in the town. And they made him out to be a villain. So uh, you know, but that's you know. That's Hollywood again. I think that was you know. the Bob Dylan song. I saw. I saw. Oh yeah, uh. Bob Dylan got involved in it, and uh, even Muhammad Ali came down and tried to, you know, do his thing, and uh, you know, so you know, thing things like that, you know, uh, you know, happen. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, but uh, Jersey just, had some. Good. You um, you just mentioned a guy that I idolized uh, as a kid, and. Uh, and he killed a guy on TV in boxing. Oh, and, yeah, uh, Emil Griffith. When I came, to, Emil Griffith, I came to your things. He, uh, I had a house fire, and another fighter, John McAteer, invited me and Pete Nasser to come down. And um, he was wearing, he always, he always seemed to wear a white T-shirt to your things. And I, I, <laughs> I don't know, how, uh, uh, I know he had no money, and I know you did his eulogy. Um, what happened to him? What happened to his money? And just tell a little bit about his career. Well, he got he actually got started when he was in the Virgin Islands. Uh, his mother, you know, uh, his father actually left, and his mother took care of him until uh, a certain certain age. And then his mother got a job in another country, and he was uh, actually raised by a relative. But the relative uh, was pretty strict with him. Anytime he even misbehaved a little bit, he'd have to hold two cinder blocks over his head. Now, he's only about 11 or 12 years old, and he held these cinder blocks over his head, and if he, he dropped them or lowered them down, he, he'd get whipped. I mean, that's how strict they were of him. But the thing that that made him made it was, uh, by doing so, made his shoulders so strong and so broad if you ever looked at him from the back, I mean, his shoulders were like, <laughs> like, like, like as wide as can be, and his waist was like, like 26 inches. But anyway, wow. he came to uh, to New York because he, you know, he wanted a better life and everything like this, and uh, he got a job in a movie uh, um, place, and then uh, he went to a hat factory. He was boxing hats, and then this one day, um, and I was good friends with his uh, manager, Howie Albert. And Harry Albert tells me this one day, you know, Emil was working there for maybe six or eight months, and uh, it was really, really hot. And he, he goes, uh, he says, Howie, he said, oh, he says, Mr. Albert, he said, can I take my shirt off? He says, uh, man, it's really hot in here. It's like over 100 degrees. He says, yeah, sure, sure, you know, because you got to box these hats, you know. So, um, so all of a sudden he takes his shirt off. And his machines running, make these hats for these ladies. And Howie says, uh, all of a sudden, he heard nothing. He said, the machines all stopped. He says, what the heck is going on? I didn't, there's no break now. He goes into the other room where all the machines are, and he sees nothing. You know, everybody's just staring at something. So he looks around, and all of a sudden, he's seen Emil without his shirt on. He said, oh, my God. He said, he looked like an Adonis. You know, he's a 19-year-old kid. So he says to Emil, he says, Emil, did you ever box? And he goes, Mr. Albert, I've been boxing hats for the last six months for you. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, so, so you know, It almost sounds like a joke. <laughs> yeah, I know, but it was true. Because I, I ran it through Emil and I ran it through uh, Howie. He said, that's exactly what happened. And he says, he says, he says, uh, no, no, fight, fight. He says, no, I'm not a fighter. I'm, 
I, I, I'm a baseball player, and he, he was. He was a he was a catcher in uh, in in the Virgin Islands. And he said, no, no, no. He said, we're going to learn you how to fight, you know. And uh, they they try to you know make a little gym up there, and you know it really wasn't working out. So uh, so Howie, you know, read about this gym teacher who, who taught boxing afterwards, after uh, like like at night. And uh, he brought him to the gym teacher, and that gym teacher, his name was uh, Gil Clancy, and they oh, hooked boy. up. And, yeah, is hooked that up the big and, Gil? What's that? Is that the real? Is that the famous Gil Clancy? Oh yeah, I did his eulogy too. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, and Howie's. <laughs> so, but so I did all three. So, so he took him under his wing, and only a couple of months he trained him and put him in the New York Golden Gloves, and he. He uh, came in. Uh, he was a runner-up in the finals, and then, uh, of course, uh, the next year, a whole year of training, he won the Golden Gloves. And then after that, he turned pro, and you know, really, the rest is history. I mean, he had 112 fights. Uh, you know, he he won like 85 of them. He fought more championship rounds than any other fighter in boxing history. You know, well over wow. 300 rounds. There's only a couple of fighters. That even touched that, but he he has the record of uh, fighting the most rounds in uh, bo- uh, most championship rounds in boxing history. He also fought more main events at Madison Square Garden than anybody else in boxing. He was a three-time welterweight champion of the world, two-time middleweight, and he always claimed, and uh, it's in the books that he was uh, uh, some sort of a junior middleweight champion also. And uh, you know, I met him years later, and I always rooted, you know, I always rooted against him for some reason. I, I always liked Louis Rodriguez, and I liked Reuben Hurricane Carter, you know. So he came down. Oh God, I guess it was in the '80s. We were running the Diamond Glove tournament, and he was—he he actually started training kids in Patterson, and uh, you know, and he, I got to know him, and he was a. I tell you, he was one of the nicest gentlemen I've ever met in my life. And he uh, he just, I, I, I told him, I says, I says, Amo, I says, I got to tell you, I said, when you fought, I said, yeah, I rooted against you all the time. I, you know, I like these other guys. Said, How come? I said, I don't know. I says, but I, I watch the tapes now, and I root for you. So he starts laughing. But, but his big fight is, you know, the thing that you were talking about was with Benny Kid Perret. Now he he, he yes. beat Perret, you know, uh, earlier in his career. He, you know, he won the the the, the championship uh, against Perret in 1961, and then uh, a few fights later, he lost a very very close decision against Perret, and then uh, they they made the rubber match in March of 1962, and uh, you know Perret was saying all kind of derogatory uh, things about him and his sexuality and everything like this. And, uh, you know, they became little, uh, you know, little enemies there for a while and, um, you know, into the fight. But uh, in one of the rounds, um, Perrette almost knocked uh, Emil Griffith out, but Emil survived. Then in the 12th round, I mean, it was just, um, I mean, Emil just opened up on uh, Perret. I think it was like 20, maybe 24 punches in a row that he hit him wow. with. And the referee, Ruby Goldstein, who refereed several bouts, like even the Johansson-Patterson uh, fight in uh, number one when uh, Patterson was knocked down seven times. I mean, he, he let it go, 
being that, you know, Perrette was the champion and trying to give him all the chance he can, but, you know, he, you know, time he stepped in, I mean, it was, um, you know, it was right. over. I mean, you know, Perrette just sagged down to the, to the canvas and, uh, you know, he never survived again. I mean, he, he got taken out with a, with a, with a stretcher. He was in a coma for, I guess the fight was on March 24th and he, he passed away on, uh, April 3rd. So, um, I mean, in, able, you know, he was never the same really the fighter, you know, he didn't have that killer instinct anymore after that fight. And, uh, you know, years later, you know, I guess you've seen the TV show where he, he met his, um, you know, Benny Kid Perrette's, uh, son, you know, and, uh, he was say, saying how, you know, sorry he was and everything like this. And, you know, they hugged each other and he said, it's, you know, son said, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And, you know, but, uh, later on in life, um, Emil uh, was coming out of uh, one of these, um, i got to say, a gay bar, and a bunch of hoodlins uh, attacked him with bats and everything like this, and uh, he was found in the street. Yeah, he he was uh, knocked unconscious. His head was split open, and he was in the hospital for for about a month, and his his, uh, stepson, uh, Louis, um, who actually became uh, a little bit more than a stepson after a while. I mean, they were they were very 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 close. You know, he took care of him. Uh, you know, almost for the rest of his life. I mean, <clears throat> ever since then, you know, uh, Emil start losing it a little bit more and more and more, and you could see mm-hmm. it. Yeah, yeah, you could see it. I, I mean, uh, we visited him in uh, a nursing home one time around. I guess it was around Thanksgiving. We we all went up there. Ring eight at the time. And uh, we went up there, and um, you know, uh, I think Daniel Jacobs was with us too. He was only a young, uh, young pro at the time, and uh, you know, we celebrated with him. But the uh, thing was, I don't think he even knew he he was, uh, yeah, who he was. And he, you know, they showed films of uh, him on on this TV screen. When, but, uh, when did he it was, die? Uh, it was about two years ago. Oh no, no, he he died. <clears throat> quite a few years ago um i'm trying to think uh i think it was 2013 yeah 2013 he was like 75 years old you know um but uh <clears throat> you know he was inducted into the new york state hall of fame international hall of fame new jersey boxing hall of fame but um like i said he he was um uh you know he was such a nice guy ibm seeing up there and uh you know, I'd be, you know, introducing people, and I'd look over to one table, and there he is playing with kids, sparring with kids and everything like this, or, or you know, laughing, making jokes, and then next thing I know, he's at another table doing the same thing. I mean, he he was the life of the party. I mean, he he was just he was just so so good to be with, and uh, you know, it was a shame the way he passed away, you know, and. You know, when he did, um, Ring 8 called me up, and so did uh, Louis, uh, his stepson, asked me if I would do the eulogy and the nine count for him at his at his, uh, at his his funeral, which I did. And then Ring 8 wanted me to do it at their meeting. And then we got a, we got a tombstone uh, for, for Emil because when he was buried, they couldn't afford it. So we, we had to go out and get one. And this is months later, and uh, I I did another one, <laughs> you know, for him. And uh, I remember Juan Laporte, 
he was there. I remember. And uh yeah, he he was um, he actually uh was trained by Emil Griffith very very close hmm. and I I seen uh Juan's face. I mean, his face was like like he lost uh, like like his father, you know. I mean, very very sad uh, very, very sad time and Louis took it very badly too. I mean, you know, he because he was with him. Great trainer from what Totowa? Yeah, well, Lou Duva. I mean, uh, uh, you know, he he died a couple of years ago, and you know, I had, <laughs> hate to say I I did his eulogy too, <laughs> but but he, he started he started back in the 1930s. I mean, you know, he he was actually a a bucket boy, a spit bucket boy for his uh, brother Carl back in the 30s, and then um, around 1938 he actually fought his first sanction bout. What I say, sanctioned bout. He did fight smokers before that, and back of bars and everything like this. You know, you get two young kids out there, and you know they would bet, you know, who would who would win and stuff like this, or all the older people. But he fought his first sanctioned bout in 1938, which he lost. But uh, two years later, he he won. I get. I think it was the 147 pound uh, diamond glove title in Patterson, New Jersey, at Hinchcliffe Stadium. Yeah, you know, he turned pro in 1942. But um, yeah, he had an up and down down career. He he was nothing to even write home about. But uh, his main thing was being a manager, you know, and and a trainer. I mean, he, he I don't say he, he was the greatest trainer in the world, but he he would motivate like like his fighter, you know, more than anyone. I mean, he he became very close friends with guys like uh, Rocky uh, Marciano, and he he really liked um, guys like Hollyfield and Pennell Whitaker and. You know, uh, Meldrick Taylor. I mean, he'd be mm-hmm. he'd be in the corner. You know, if they're ready to quit, he he'd be yelling and screaming at them, and and he'd motivate them so much that they they'd rather go out there and fight their opponent than, than sit in the ring. You know, sit in the corner with with Lou. I mean, uh, Lou was um, you know he was inducted into you know the International Boxing Hall of Fame and New Jersey Boxing Hall of Fame, and you know, like I said, he. He, um, he he used to have fights in uh, Gladiators Arena in Totowa, and you know he I really wasn't that, making yeah. it. Yeah, he really wasn't making it there. And then um, back, I guess, in the late '70s, early '80s, he he decided to go to Ice World in Totowa, and that's what took you know it took off. You know, he started getting bigger fighters. He he went to the Olympic Games, I guess, in '84. He came back with uh, a host of uh, Olympic medalists. You know, including uh, you know Holly Field and uh, um, mm-hmm. Whitaker, and you know, uh, you know guys at Breland. I mean, guys like that. And uh, you know, it, it, he, he he his career just took off. And his his um, and when I say his career, uh, you know, his sons and daughters really helped him out. Uh, his son uh, Dan Dan Duva, who who died uh, very young, uh, he died of a brain tumor. Uh, years later, but he, he was a lawyer. He he was the brains. I mean, you know, Lou. He 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 knew people. So between them two, they really, really branched out. And then you had Dino and Donna and the rest of them. And of course, Kathy um, um, Duva. That's uh, Dan's um, uh, wife. She's still involved with uh, main events and stuff like this. So uh, you know, That's I still mean, going. <laughs> yeah, it's still going, and you know she has a Kovalov. You know Kovalov just fought a week or so ago, and you know I've seen her in the ring. She does a 
does a great job, you know, with you know, with the boxing. She continued it after her husband, um, you know, passed. So, um, you know, you know. Let me like ask said, you one. You talked about Patterson a lot. There's always a thing about Lou Costello. How did Lou Costello, the comedian, did, did he personally start a boxing ring, or um, did he fund it? But so many no. fighters came out of that. Yeah, well, to tell you the truth, uh, he had nothing to do with starting uh, the Lou Costello Sportsman Club. The Sportsman Club started around 1970. Uh, uh, he was dead Lou, in the Lou 50s. Costello died, I think it was 1959, 58 or 59. You know, he he, uh, he passed away. I, re- I remember the day he passed away because uh, I, I was walking to school that day, and um, and, you know, people weren't the same they they were just um you know reading papers and everything like this and, uh, and i'm saying geez you know well, you know usually they say hello to me and everything like this but it looked like something went on that i didn't know about and uh so then i i just grabbed the paper and um i seen that um lou costello had had, had passed uh, yeah it was march uh march 3rd 1959 that he passed away, and uh, you know, it, it was you know, it's, it, it was terrible. Uh, you know, he 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 and I always say there was um, three Lou's in in Patterson. There was Lou Duva, Lou Costello, and there was this other guy, Lou Cuccinello, who was actually Lou Duva's best friend. I mean, them them uh, they're the three uh, you know big big names that came out of Patterson, New Jersey. Now. Uh, uh, Lou Costello claims that he was an amateur boxer back in the day, and I, you know, even fought as a pro under, underneath uh, the name of Lou King. Now, I did find a fight for Lou King. He fought Patty Malone, and um, you know, um, Costello always claimed that he fought Patty Malone. But on the, you know, on, on the article when they says uh, Lou King, whose real name is Max Kaufman, so. I don't know if, if he was telling the truth there. You know, a lot of but, detective uh, work. Yeah, you know, so I, I I don't know if he was telling the truth there, but I I go along with it. You know, uh, you know, Luke King. I think I've never seen a movie where he fought as you know, you know, maybe it was a TV show or he had uh, uh, Adam Costello. I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah, he he fights. Yeah. Uh, you know, he he loved the fights. I mean, he. You know when they had the diamond gloves, um, you know in Patterson they had them in uh, from 1933 up to 1950, and from uh, from 1940 to I think 48 they had it at Hinchcliffe Stadium, and uh, they had as many as 12,000 people coming to Hinchcliffe Stadium to watch fights. And the fact uh, and Lou Costello uh, and and Abbott they used to have a skit. They used to go in the ring and uh, do their you know, you know who's on first and what's on second. Oh, you know, they, they they did the whole comedy routine there, and uh, you know a little history on. Uh, I believe it was uh, July thirty first, nineteen forty six, the first ever televised sporting event ever come out of the state of New Jersey. That was in the semifinals of the New Jersey uh, uh, Diamond Gloves at the Hinchcliffe Stadium. It was actually the uh, at that time it was actually called uh, Passaic County. Uh, diamond gloves, and that was uh, the first televised sporting event. But you have to think it's it's easy to tape boxing than it is football or um, or baseball 
because in baseball and football you got to move the camera all around. In, in boxing, all, right. all you got to yeah. do is set up the camera, you know, have the whole ring, you know, and just you know you can <laughs> you can you know you know go away from everything and you're still going to get the fight, you know. So uh, so it's pretty easy to do a do a, 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 a fight. Castell ring that lasted so many years, and I think the guy was uh, he had a name like Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis Parham was that his name? The guy that ran it. Well, Joe Lewis for him didn't didn't run that that thing. He he uh, he actually had something to do with the Hackensack uh, PAL, but he helped out. Uh, Joe Lewis Parham is actually the first guy ever to fight um, Mah- uh, Muhammad Ali, <laughs> Emil Griffith. If you look at Emil oh, Griffith's boy. record, you know you'll see you'll see the name Joe Joe Parham. That's the first guy, and when he died. Uh, he, he actually did uh, the brickwork in my house, you know, in front of my house. <laughs> and uh, his wife t- uh, called me up and told me he passed, and I was shocked because he was always in great shape. You know, he was a trainer and everything else, and uh, and I said, man, great shape. And then uh, the next thing I know, the funeral director calls me up and tells me, you know, we have a problem. I said, why? What's the problem? He says, well, he said, we, you know, he had no insurance. He says, uh, you know, I'm a good friend of his, but I, I, I can only get it, you know, the funeral down to about $8,000. He says, can you help us out? So within three days, I raised $8,000. And, uh, you know, I, I performed the, the eulogy, and, I, you know, and, and uh, the wife was just overwhelmed. Like, she was so happy. You know, it wasn't really me. I mean, I, I, I did the legwork, but, I mean, organizations, you know, like the New Jersey Boxing Hall of Fame, Ring 25, uh, uh, Ring 8, and, and others, you know, they kicked in, Lou Costello Club, because the Lou Costello, you know, going back to Lou Costello, Lou Costello Club is still around, um, you know, they, they used to be on Ghoul Ave, and then they, they moved, and then they, they got, uh, they had to get out of that, that second place, and now they're with Ike and Randy's on Park Ave. In Patterson, and they're still looking for a building. The guy, the guy that runs it, is uh, <laughs> for the last maybe 30 years, is a guy by the name of Pierre Benoist. He's a professional. I know um, that name. What yeah, was he's he? a professional boxing uh, judge. He, he was um, he was with the amateur for so long, and uh, you know he was just honored by um, the amateur um, New Jersey Amateur Boxing Hall of Fame as uh, a long and meritorious service award guy. And he, gave the, he belongs the, to your uh, group. Doesn't yeah, he do prayers yeah, he does. or something? He's our chaplain. Him? Yeah, he's our chaplain. And, uh, you know, he's been through a lot. And uh, But uh, he he still runs the, the Costello Club. He runs a golf tournament every year trying to kind of raise money, you know. And, uh, you know, that's the other things we do. Um, like I belong to the AAIB. That's the American Association of Improvement of Boxing. And uh, we we run a golf tournament every year. And all the money, every single cent, goes to um, young men and women in, uh, in the amateur boxing or professional boxing that goes to college. You know, uh, we, that's very we have, good. Yeah, we we send it out to all over the nation. You know, um, you know, kids in uh, college uh, that that are box uh, can can uh, send in an application. They they send it to me. And I give it to a committee. You know, we have like 50, 60 um, applications every year. And uh, we get them from California, Florida, you know, Hawaii. I mean, all, all over, you know, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, 
all over the world, all over the United States. And, uh, you know, we give away maybe 14, 15 scholarships every year. You know, uh, your your organization, and, and I'm going to get to how you nominate people and induct them and all that, but I've met boxing trainer, uh, uh, referees, uh, one that I, I know that got hit by Larry Holmes in a fight. Uh, you have oh, yeah. trainers. Maybe maybe uh, uh, you're talking about Paul Venti or somebody. Like that. Yes, Paul Venti. I met him and I, <clears throat> I really loved that. I, I know he's, yeah, he was, you told me he's dead. Yeah, he, he Don't passed. Don't tell me he did uh, his funeral. <laughs> yeah, I did his too. <laughs> I, did, I did his too. The place was packed. And, uh, yeah, I did his and uh, he, he was a good friend of mine. He was the president of Ring 25 and, and then Ring 14 at, at one time. And, uh, you know, just to let you know, like like um, with the Hall of Fame and with Ring 8 and with, with uh, Ring 25 and, you know, Ring 10 and all these other organizations, you know, the, the money, you know, everybody says, what do you do with the money? You know, we help out uh, all these old-time fighters and old-time managers and trainers and anybody that's involved in boxing that need our help. You know, some 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 people maybe just need a phone call. Some people need maybe a bag of groceries or their electric bill paid or their rent paid or a doctor bill paid or or like Joe Parham, you know, um, you know, a funeral paid. Like like Rocky Lockridge, he he just passed away and uh he's going to be um his funeral is going to be next Saturday. I'm going to go down in Camden and uh, do my <laughs> do my thing, you know. And, uh, you know, they're probably looking for something, you know, for, for some uh, financial help because he, he was, uh, you know, really down and out. I mean, he didn't have nothing at the end. I mean, it, it, that's a shame because he was he was one of the, the premier uh, featherweights and super featherweights in the world at one time. He was two-time world champion, and I remember him being honored by us you know, as our boxer of the year, and then later on as our in, in being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I remember him speaking right right in front of me because I, you know, I, I, when when he speaks, I, I stand right in right in back of the person that's speaking. And uh, I, I said, "Wow!" I said, "He really has it together." I mean, his his voice. I mean, he talked like a college professor. I mean, it was really really nice. And but then. You know, a few years later, he got involved too much into, you know, the drugs and the alcohol, and you know, his life really went went really downhill. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I mean, you you see that intervention uh, show about him. I mean, I, I watched it the other day, you know, for the first time in in, in about ten years, I guess. And uh, man, it just brings tears to your eyes. You know, to find a guy like this, you know, uh, you know panhandling for a quarter. You know, you got a that's, quarter. You that's got a what quarter. really bothers. I, I, I want you at the end of this to give addresses how people can get involved, how we can, you know, help take part in some of these cases, like his case and whatever. Uh, well, anybody can get well, on my email list if they want. They they could send me an email. It's very easy. It's H Haskup. So that's H H A S C U P at Yahoo dot com. Just send me an email saying you want to be put on the email list, and I'll put you I on the email I, list. I don't want to speak for Hercules, but I know I think we both. He's he comes from an area. His name tells you he's uh, he's. <laughs> 
He has some Greek blood in him. Uh, yes, I do. They fought in the Olympics and they had their own Olympics and everything else, wrestling, whatnot. But I think uh, we, I think we both would appreciate it, and he'll post that. Um, I want you to explain these rings because I was in one. I don't know if we have one in Sussex County because uh, one of my well, men, uh, you, I, I did a, a whole research thing. If you put down uh, veteran boxing um, rings and then just put down uh, Henry Haskup, you'll you'll see. I, I did a whole research on that. Uh, all the rings in the history of. Uh, and you know it's a shame because um, most of them are defunct now. There's only a handful that's left in uh, in the United States. I mean, we had over a hundred, even in uh, New Jersey. I mean, we had like like ten just in New Jersey at one time. I mean, you know, in Camden, in Atlantic City. I mean, you know, North. I mean, you know, uh, Jersey City. You know, I mean, you know, we had. Um, let's see. Ring, I'm um, just trying to think now, ring 9, you know, ring 14, ring 20, ring 25, ring 34, you know, I mean, it goes on and on. Now there's only a few left, like ring 1, that's uh, that's a beautiful ring. I mean, they have a clubhouse second to none. If you want to see some memorabilia displayed, that's the place to go to. Uh, they have a, a clubhouse that's uh, two or three stories high, and uh, they, they really display it nice. And uh, that, that was the first ring that started around the 1930s, 1935. And then it went, you know, and then number two. But uh, the ones that are still involved is ring one, then you got ring four, then you got ring eight, ring ten, uh, then ring 25, I think it's 44 is left. And there might be a few other ones. I know I'm going to leave out somebody, but, you know, I mean, you know, and then you have like the Hall of Fames. You got, you know, New Jersey Hall of Fame, uh, Pennsylvania Hall of Fame, uh, you know, uh, New York State Hall of Fame, you know, West Coast Hall of Fame, California Hall of Fame. You know, you got a bunch of them, and they do do their share too. I mean, we all try to help out, you know, these um, these ex fighters, because um, <clears throat> you know, like even Emil Griffith, you know, he was he was, you know, so great. And then, you know, he's like forgotten. You know, he didn't have a, a pot to pee in when he when he died. I mean, he had nothing. That's when I got to tell you that I worked in I worked in Trent, and uh, we had a guy, and I know you're going to know who he is, Ike Tiger Williams. Um, well, Ike Williams, yeah, I don't think his, his nickname wasn't Tiger, but is is uh yeah he 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 was great. I mean, uh, they put a uh, a monument up. Uh, for him, uh, and uh, I had to go down, and I was the guest speaker. Had to had to tell about his life. I mean, he was one of the, you know, if I had to rate the let's say the greatest fighters ever come out of uh, New Jersey, you know, you got Mickey Walker, you got Ike Williams, you got Joe Jeanette, you got uh, Jersey Joe Walcott, you got Dwight Muhammad Kwawi. I mean, th- these are the names that come up, you know, first. You know, Bobby Ches later on. And, you know, I remember the uh, He wound up yeah. on a board of education somewhere in. Uh, and it, it, yeah, I, the, I, I hate the, to do this, but we're approaching the end of uh, today's show. Um, this is fascinating stuff. I, I'm not a big fan of boxing, uh, but I sat enwrapped in what you guys were saying. So, would you like to make this like a regular thing every couple of months and continue? Yeah, why not? Sports? You know, 
<laughs> yeah, we, we can do that. I, I'm not going to refuse Hercules. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm greatly honored, sir. <laughs> uh, it's all mine. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm on uh, another uh, uh, talk show uh, every every other Saturday with uh, Aaron Snowell. Awesome. Uh, it's the same uh, same podcast, too, I think. Uh, it's not the same the number, but it's just, yeah, it's blog radio, yeah, and uh, it comes on every Saturday at 11 o'clock. Okay, and, uh, you and Bill. You've got to go talk. on his show and advertise us. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, you, you, if, if you guys talk and, like, like uh, we'll set a date, I'll be pre-recording very soon, so it doesn't have to be, like, this, this late in the evening. We could pre-record okay. the show. And, and do them later. So uh, I'm in the process of learning how to do that uh, better now. So you yeah, guys well, talk, uh, put something together, and this is awesome, awesome stuff. Well, you know the history of boxing, and you know, like I said, this this month is Black History Month. I mean, you can go right through the uh-huh. Black history, you know, from uh, from the 1700s when uh, you know slave owners or plantation owners used to put their slaves up against each other and. You know, I know Tom Molyneux uh, even got his uh, freedom because uh, he had his slave owner win $100,000, and the uh, slave owner gave him 500 and he gave him his freedom. You know, so somebody, you know, these guys fought until they, they were just about dead, and some, some of them did die, you know, because they, they wanted their freedom so bad. But, uh, you know, boxing has a long history in New Jersey, the first ever fight in New Jersey actually happened happened near um, Belleville, New Jersey, back in 1821. So that's how far wow. it goes back. Wow. And the first million dollar gate, the first million dollar gate in boxing history, actually took place at Boyle's 30 Acres in Jersey City between Jack Dempsey that's and George's Carpentier. Yeah, and that was uh, that was uh, July 2nd, 1921, and I actually had to give a speech. Uh, several months ago in Jersey City, just about that fight. And, uh, that is you know. awesome. Wow. Um, you had said that people can reach you through an email. Uh, yeah, the email is the best. In a couple of minutes. Uh, what is that email? I'll share it with everybody. Okay, it's H Haskup. It's just like my name. You know, my first initial, my last name together. Okay. And then at yahoo.com. Okay, I got that. Yeah, that's the best way. And then, then they could be put on my mailing list, and I, I send out, you know, most of the time it's RIPs. You know, somebody <laughs> passed away, and, but uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it really took off. And anywhere I go now, oh, you're the guy that sends out, oh, I want to thank you so much for doing that, you know. I said, oh, man, I'm, I'm going to be known as the Grim Reaper pretty soon, you know. <laughs> Well, but you, you perform an awesome service for those uh, who need that service. And, and I'm going to have to end the show now. We're just informed we have less than a minute. Thanks again, Henry. And, Bill, thank you. you are, you're awesome in finding the most remarkable uh, guests. So uh, we will repeat this again very soon. I'll be in touch with both of you. Okay. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. And we've got the Atlantic City Boxing Hall of Fame coming up, too, and the New York State Boxing Hall of Fame. But anybody emails me, I can give them all that that information. Okay. Thanks again. Well, I certainly and will. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And happy Valentine's Day. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Same here. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Olympian blessings to all who have joined us on our adventure. 
Now, go forth and create a better world. One filled with light and love. On behalf of the pride of Olympus and her crew, may your journeys be joyous. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.